This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. This episode has a stark difference between me and the guests. The experience of my guests is the mirror image of my own, at least when it comes to Christianity. I became a Christian. They left the church. Chrissy Stroop and Lauren O'Neill both grew up in religious families, and they both came to see their experience in those environments as malformative is the word I came up with, if not actually abusive. They both left the church, as I said, and together they've edited a book of stories about people who come to similar conclusions about their experience. It's called Empty the Pews, and it's a fascinating peek, not just inside the various subcultures of Christianity, but it's also a look at the panoply of reasons that these subcultures can be harmful, especially to children. For some, the stories that Empty the Pews contains might seem kind of extreme. But consider that these stories are coming to light at a time when Americans are leaving religion in record numbers. The number of us who identify as Christian has declined by 12% in 10 years, though it's still pretty dominant, 65%. And the number of those who identify as atheist or agnostic or none is up 17% to 26% of the population. Now, op-ed writers kind of wring their hands about these numbers. What does it mean? Where are we going to get our values from? I think I am channeling Chrissy and Lauren when I suggest, please get them almost anywhere else. Perhaps now is a good time to give the content warning I sometimes forget to mention. This show, obviously, includes an intense discussion of Christianity and the harms it can do. If you are someone who has been harmed or whose identity has been targeted in the name of Christianity, take care of yourself and consider how or when or if you want to listen to this conversation at all. I hope you do. And if you're ready, coming right up, a discussion of Empty the Pews. Hi, welcome to the show, Chrissy. Thanks, Anna. It's great to, it's great to be on. And you too, Lauren. Thank you so much. I want to ask you both this, but I'll just start with Lauren, if that's okay. Lauren. Sure. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's not okay? Want, me, want Chrissy to go first? <laughs> no, no, it's totally okay. <laughs> um, uh, why was doing this book important to you? So this is this is interesting because Chrissy and I kind of have had, we've talked about this and we have different perspectives on it. 
Um, for me, I come from uh, an, an editorial and literary background. I've worked at um, literary magazines and edited a lot of personal essays. And so um, to me, this is just like, it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And um, personal essays are one of my favorite mediums. So for me, the purpose of this book is really like for people to be able to get in uh, the various different writers' heads and walk around in there for a while and see what their experience is like. Um, obviously, one of the great things about literature is, you know, you can see a, a sentence that a stranger wrote and think, that's me, that's exactly me. Um, and conversely, you can see something that a stranger wrote that has nothing to do with you, and you're like, oh, I understand that now. Um, so to me, I think it's a lot about empathy and um, about letting readers know, especially ex-believers like us, that their stories are valid and important and uh, worthwhile. Chrissy? Uh, yeah, I agree with Lauren uh, about, you know, the importance of literature for empathy and uh, and that literary essays can do that same sort of thing. Um, and, you know, the personal essay is also one of my favorite genres just to read. Uh, but in terms of thinking about the purpose of the book, I had kind of two broad purposes in mind. And I think they kind of evolved or really sort of coalesced in my head sort of later in the process. Uh, we started talking about this as at least as early as 2012. And we started actively working on it in 2016. Uh, it took us so long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really did. But um, before Trump got elected and him getting elected certainly uh, changed the picture. Um so what I want to do with this book or what I had kind of hoped to do with this book was kind of through various voices, we very deliberately sought out a really diverse collection of talented authors um, to kind of create a sort of composite portrait of this generational moment in which um, many young people are leaving religion, um, which is, of course, much discussed in the press, but usually sort of in the form of, oh, this is terrible. Oh, this is a crisis. And uh, you don't really see people who leave religion getting a seat at the table in the elite public sphere. And I would like to see more of that. And so, you know, while a, a memoir along these lines uh, can also be a really powerful thing to read, I thought having multiple voices uh, might help with collective visibility, which in turn might help us change the conversation, the national conversation around religion and Christianity, and particularly around the more high-demand forms of Christianity. Um, and, you know, coming from a historical and an academic background, uh, being trained as a historian, Stanford PhD, 2012, in modern Russian history, I wanted to Humble bring brag. in— brag. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that diploma and a dollar will get me a pack of gum these days, but— um, yeah, so I wanted to bring in sort of context and background and statistics, and we did that to an extent in the in the introduction. I had initially imagined having more of a scholarly apparatus in the book, but I really liked the final form that it took. So this is the generation that is the rise of the nuns in O N E, an unfortunate, <laughs> an unfortunate <laughs> homonym, right? Uh, in that. The, I be, believe it is the most common religious distinction, religious denomination, so-called, is none, right? Um, and it's 26% growing. 26% of fastest, the population. Yeah. It's the fastest growing 
religious denomination. Again, I guess I don't know quite what the right description of that choice is. Belief system? Who knows? Anyway, um, (laughs) it is the fastest growing. It's a lot of millennials. And I'm interested in what you're talking, and I'm interested in how you said that you feel like when that gets discussed in the popular press, it gets bemoaned. it's It's seen as a crisis. Chrissy, how yeah, would you, how would about, you yeah how would you like like it to be, what what is that you want to change what do you want to change about that conversation? Well, so you think about people like Peter Beinart or Peter Weiner and um, and a number of people at the Washington Post as well as the Atlantic, and when they write about things like this, uh, Michael Gerson, for example, in his Washington Post column, they uh, they lament that oh these hypocritical evangelicals have uh, ruined Christianity. And there was also just a really terrible op-ed in the Wall Street Journal the other day. I'm I'm forgetting the name, but it's a a psychoanalyst in New York who literally uh, suggested that parents, if they don't believe in God, should lie to their children because children apparently need to believe in in God and life after death. And, you know, for someone who who was traumatized by being told about life after death and eternity and the possibility of burning in hell forever and wasn't sure that I was really saved and, you know, who grew up in this really hardline form of Christianity, I just want to scream when I read op-eds like that. And, you know, a lot of times these, these journalists and commentators, they'll talk to pastors or something and the pastors will be like, yep, it's really sad. We wish we could get more people in church. Church is good for people. And it's not always. It can be. It can be. But, you know, uh, people who have left, particularly people who have left um, really high-demand toxic religion, deserve to be heard. And as a rule, for for the most part right now, we're silenced. Mm-hmm. It does seem like there's two parallel conversations that are happening in this book. At least that's how I see it. Uh, one is about the evangelical church and conservative Christianity, which seems to have a level of abuse and trauma that I think many people, even if they consider themselves fairly politically engaged, don't realize. And then there is just the choice to leave the church. Both of those stories, kinds of stories, get told. And I'm more interested in a little bit of that middle ground where, Chrissy, as you said, Simply the idea of of hell, right? The idea of God and the idea of being punished in in the afterlife is itself a kind of traumatizing thing. Because I maybe very fortunately did not grow up with a religious tradition. (laughs) (laughs) And I never really, that was always, I mean, I remember friends talking about this and it always seemed like an odd convention to me. But Lauren, that is the tradition you grew up with, right? That And you thought about hell a lot. Yeah, and I think a lot of a lot of Christian kids do. I didn't come from a particularly hardline background. I came from a mainline Protestant um, Presbyterian background. There wasn't a big focus on like hellfire, but um, you know, as a very conscientious kid who was very oriented around um, trying to be good and you know trying to be a good Christian, like you know, hell is always. You're just always thinking about it. Um, And, you know, like Chrissy said, you're never really sure if you're saved. That conscientiousness is a really important point because I think, you know, what happens, um, certainly what I've seen from being active in ex-evangelical spaces 
is that often it's the most conscientious kids, the most scrupulous, who end up with serious psychological damage. Uh, I mean, even just apart from, you know, physical abuse and sexual abuse, I'm I'm not a survivor of child sex abuse. I, um, I was spanked, including with a wooden spoon. That's the worst I got. But, you know, when you try to make everything fit together with this kind of hardline Christian ideology— and uh, you you try to, you know, dot every I and cross every T so hard. And it's literally impossible because it's designed to be impossible because it's supposed to make you hate yourself so you don't leave the fold. Um, you know, it, it, it's really, really destructive to um, your psyche. I remember when I um, first started, like, First, I was kind of like, oh, I'm I'm a Christian, but I'm progressive. And then I was like, mm, I'm agnostic. And then I was like, yeah, I'm an atheist. But I, <laughs> I think when I was like uh, saying that I was agnostic and I was in college and uh, I told that to my sister and my sister was way, way less observant than I was. And she like, like I was the one who was super religious and super into it. But my sister, who didn't pay much attention in church, burst into tears because she was afraid that I was going to hell. And I was like, no, no, it's okay. Like, nobody's <laughs> going to hell. It's fine. It's actually much better. <laughs> oh. um, and like I said, this is the part that fascinates me because I, I feel like there's a very, there are very clear stories in the popular media about abuse in churches, right? Even in, in extreme abuse in evangelical churches. And there are stories mm-hmm. of that in your book, which were really horrifying and, and a reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I find it fascinating to think about being indoctrinated in, in in almost any, you know, flavor of Christianity as something that is going to have a perverse effect on a child, especially, like you're saying, an a, a attentive child, a conscientious child, that there is something about that that in and of itself will warp someone and— I wonder, I mean, one of the things I wonder about, and I don't know if either of you can answer this, but I'll ask because you're both examples of this, is how if you grow up with that tradition, if you grow up with that way of thinking, if you grow up in a as a particularly conscientious young person, what is it that causes you to rethink this? Because not everyone mm-hmm. does, right? Like this is something that makes every single yeah. person in this book different. Mm-hmm. Like, for, for one thing, I can understand someone who un, went, underwent abuse leaving a church, right? Like, that mm-hmm. that would be highly motivating. <laughs> not to not to make a joke, but it, it would be a thing that would ob- right. be an obvious way, mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. you would want a way out. But this other more subtle way of shaping children and shaping minds, like, Chrissy, maybe you can answer this because you also didn't have a— like you said, a physically abusive, except for the spoon, which to me, that's also, that's pretty bad. But why do you think that it's you— It's not great. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Yeah, it's pretty I mean, bad. I, I don't believe in spanking at all at this point. But right. uh, yeah, I mean, using any kind of instrument like that is right. definitely crossing a line. Um, but why do you think you, you were inspired, let's say, to start questioning mm-hmm. that? What started you on that path that, that not everyone not everyone has that same— prodding. Yeah. Um, I've been interested in that question for a really long time, and not just for myself, but also for other people, which was part of the motivation that Lauren and I had for, you know, talking about doing like a a project like this 
someday, and then kind of finally getting it together and working on the project. And um, for myself, I um, I always felt different growing up. I um, I couldn't quite put my finger on why, um, but things sort of felt off. I felt uncomfortable in my own skin. I mean, I don't mean there weren't many happy moments, but also um, I do remember, you know, very early trauma from uh, being led as, I think, a three-and-a-half or four-year-old kid through um, the sinner's prayer to save me from hell. And then I suppose my parents wanted me to focus on the, yay, now you get to go to heaven part. But, um, you know, Lauren and I are both um, oldest children in our families, and um, we do have that kind of stereotypical oldest child conscientiousness. And um, so, you know, I, re- I remember uh, lying in bed as a young kid, just praying the sinner's prayer over and over because I wasn't really sure if it had taken and just having intense, intense anxiety around this. And um, yeah, because I felt different and uncomfortable in my own skin, it became very cerebral. From a pretty early age, I became kind of a little anthropologist. And so I was sort of observing things, living in my head, you know, with a, a step back. And I did have some reading in my childhood that um, I think planted seeds to use some very Christian language there of, you know, questioning on an intellectual level. Like, yes, I had really ridiculous and hilarious, looking back at it now, um, young earth creationist literature, for example, uh, Dwayne T. Gish's book, Dinosaurs, Those Terrible Lizards, has some really (laughs) awesome uh, 1970s art. Um, but, you know, tells us dinosaurs and humans lived at the same time and evolution couldn't be true because X, Y, Z and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, my grandma on my mom's side, who is uh, way more moderate than anyone else on that side of the family, also got me a subscription to Ranger Rick magazine. So I decided I was going to support environmentalism, which was always, you know, weird in my family. Um, I kept trying to remind people, turn off the lights when you leave the room. Why aren't we recycling? And uh, which nobody did in Indiana at that time, really. I'm <laughs> um, so, yeah, there, there was that. Uh, but the process of leaving for me was really protracted and painful because while I felt a lot of qualms, uh, I had internalized these disciplinary mechanisms that we'd been, we, we've sort of been talking about as well. Um, and I didn't want to rock the boat with my family. And I knew that total conformity in religion and politics, which are basically the same thing in a conservative white evangelical family, was expected. And that if I disagreed, it would be easiest to um, keep quiet about it. And I also was still afraid of hell. And for many years, in fact, after I stopped uh, believing in hell, probably about a decade, I still had some level of fear of hell, um, diminishing over time, but it didn't completely disappear until uh, finally at age 33, I realized I was queer and and then came to realize that, um, you know, I'm a transgender woman. Um, and it's, it's just funny that I think that kind of unresolved stuff was just repressed for that long. And as soon as I came to that conclusion, after a couple decades of what I thought was primarily an intellectual struggle, the fear of hell basically disappeared. Oh, interesting. It was the it was the recognizing who you were that helped dissipate the fear and not the other way around. I think a lot of people might assume in order that in order to come to terms with one's queerness or transness, you would then you would first have to not be scared of hell. But you're saying it sort of happened in the opposite. 
direction? Yeah. Well, I do a lot of things in my life out of order. (laughs) 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 Um, But yeah, I mean, so for me, uh, I was so focused on, you know, first trying to um, find an intellectually satisfying way to save my faith because I didn't want to rock the boat with my family and find a way to reconcile having some kind of faith with having a more progressive politics. And so it was this long process of deconstruction. And, you know, when you're raised in um, this kind of high-demand Christian environment, um, you are simply told, this is your identity. This is how we do things. This is who you are. And then, you know, I was sent to Christian school. Our social milieu was basically Christian school and church for the most part. And until I started getting to do some more secular things, um, did a little bit in childhood with like local theater and stuff, um, which again, is kind of weird for evangelicals. Like I didn't have the worst of it. But then in high school, I got to do more secular programs like summer honors programs at Indiana State University. And so I met people who weren't from that background. And boy, was I a real fish out of water then. Uh, like I couldn't believe they were all using curse words and stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> um so, you know, I was so focused on all of that, I couldn't figure out who who I was. And you kind of, I think, sometimes have to deconstruct that before you can really get to the question of, so if that's not who I am, who am I actually? I do mm-hmm. think that, you know, if my queerness had been sort of um, of a more obvious form that I could have recognized even in that environment, like if I had just been like straight up a gay boy or something, you know, I could have probably found out more, or at least I I would have known that, you know, I was different in a way that had something to do with sexuality. Um, But I, in my childhood, you know, I identified with a lot of strong women with female characters um, and, um, and so forth. But, you know, it didn't, I couldn't put the pieces together um, until much later, Mm. uh, just because I am attracted to women uh, still. I've also learned that I can be attracted to men, too. So, you know, I've been on hormone replacement therapy for about three months now. I don't know if that's really changing my sexuality at all. But, um, you know, a few years before I started hormone replacement therapy, well, I think like six or eight, uh, I'm trying to remember in my... No, yeah, it was um, about five years ago, I guess, I first had a crush on a male friend, and I was like, well, this is very interesting. (laughs) Um, and I just <laughs> kind of tried to observe the feelings because I knew he was completely unavailable um, and just enjoy spending time with him. It, um, but yeah, you know, I, in, in, in childhood when I would get teased about, um, you know, doing school plays or being a big Alanis Morissette fan, I would just fall back on, well, I'm comfortable in my masculinity. And that always meant exactly one thing. It meant I like girls, which mm. was enough to conform sort of mm-hmm. in that environment. So Lauren, your experience was very different than Chrissy's. Yes. Like you said, you're a mainline Protestant. But yes. How so if, to me, like again, so coming at this from a completely like outside perspective, it would seem that the urgency of leaving is a little less present. And I um yeah. And I also think that that's maybe a lot of even because you we've kind of mentioned this in, in passing maybe, but I do think that in American culture, even people who consider themselves good liberals have a kind of deference to to religion, to Christian religion, I should say specifically, maybe other religions too, and especially yeah, kind particularly of, Christianity, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. especially mainstream Christianity, I think there's a sense of like, well, it's not so bad, you know, like uh, it's 
Right. It's not those crazy people speaking in tongues right, or whatever. Right. It's just, you know. And and so I think that— Yeah, the ones who are in charge of our government right now, they're obviously not important. <laughs> they're not real Christians, so we shouldn't pay attention to them. Quote, unquote, yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, so what what about your experience? What do you think is the spark that, that um, started well, you in, in, in a direction that, again, many people, especially in those mainline religions, don't necessarily take? It seems to me—correct me if I'm wrong—but it does seem to me that a lot of the nun— designated people, the people who just leave, they don't have a revelation. They don't necessarily become agnostic or even atheist. They just kind of drift away. Yeah. Um, for me, like, as as Chrissy was saying, um, um, I was very cerebral and intellectual also. Um, I think it's that same conscientiousness that I was applying to Christianity. I was also applying to everything else in life um, and was very curious about everything. So, you know, I wasn't supposed to believe in evolution, but then I learned about it in school and I understood it and I was curious about it. And then that creates this cognitive dissonance or um, my best friend in high school was gay um, and I was supposed to think that, you know, homosexuality was an abomination in the eyes of the Lord. Um, but obviously that wasn't true. So, like, I think if I if I took the same, um, like— tack that I was taking with Christianity, which was to try and think about it deeply and to like explore it and believe it, I was also applying that to the rest of the world and the the cognitive dissonance became too much to bear. Um, I also have a big difference from Chrissy in that I grew up in a suburb of Berkeley. So the surrounding culture was very liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I had like the exact opposite experience where I was always the odd one out because I was Christian. And um, so for me, it was not a big there was no like social barrier to leaving the church. In fact, there was somewhat of the opposite where I don't think anybody was like, nobody was ever really judging me for being a Christian, but people were surprised to learn it. And so it like removed a like awkward 10 seconds of every conversation. (laughs) You know, there was like kind of a, a mild social barrier in the other way for me. Now, the way that I became familiar with your stories was through a hashtag, like so many things these days, uh, <laughs> the hashtag ex-evangelical. Uh, Chrissy, did you start that hashtag? Uh, it was Blake Chastain, I think, who first hashtagged ex-evangelical. Uh-huh. Um, I know that when he came up with that term to use for his blog and podcast, he— um, he he checked. He sort of Google did a Google search to see if anybody else had come up with it, and it had been used by one person on what seemed to be an abandoned blog. But I do believe he was the first one to hashtag it. And that's ex evangelicals, not ex evangelicals. I've been abbreviating it incorrectly in my margin notes. I now notice. Um, and is that? But this is a book that's about more than that. Is that a sp- more specific movement than what you are talking about in the book? Yeah, I mean it's it's adjacent. But, um, you know, Lauren and I had discussions about uh, how to define the scope of this book because uh, we think there are important discussions to be had about leaving um, religion in general. And also, you know, I think there are good, co- important conversations that can be had among uh, ex-fundamentalists from different backgrounds. I was just at a really infer- interesting conference uh, in New York a few weeks ago, the Amish Heritage Foundation's second annual conference organized by Torah Bontrager. And this is mostly like ex-Amish or people who recognize themselves as um, non-compliant Amish. 
Um, and they got together with, you know, ex-ultra-Orthodox Jews. Um, there was an ex-Muslim speaker. I spoke. And I think we had a really valuable conversation there. And the main theme was, you know, every child in America uh, deserves to have a right to a full education. And so all of us had had our education limited in some ways by our religious backgrounds. Of course, Amish and ultra-Orthodox Jews are some of the, the most extreme there. And Torah Bontrager's goal is actually to overturn Wisconsin versus Yoder, mm. uh, which is the Supreme Court decision from 1973 that— um, allows the Amish to stop educating their children after eighth grade. She wanted to be educated, so, you know, she she ran away and uh, went to live with an uh, ex-Amish uncle and went to high school. Um, and now she lives in New York, so that's a pretty cool story. But when it comes to um, this book, yeah, we ended up deciding to include ex-Catholics, ex-Mormons, um, ex-Evangelicals, and I think Lauren is probably the only ex-Mainline. But boy, the way that she internalized mainline Protestantism is very similar to the ways that some of yeah. us inter internalize more hardline forms. I mean, there's a brilliant line um, in, in Lauren's essay, and I'm probably going to mess it up a little bit, but paraphrasing, um, she said something like, uh, you know, sure, Christianity teaches us to, or the Bible says we should love our neighbors as ourselves, but what if Christianity teaches us not to love ourselves? Then we hate our neighbors as we hate ourselves. Mm. That was pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I just memorized a lot of Bible verses. <laughs> uh, I do feel like that is a real theme in the book that even so there's a few different themes, but and one of them has to do with imposing this fear of hell on children, which when you think about it, if you try to come at that idea from if, as you're an alien landing on Earth, it does seem right. like, like yeah. a, such a strange <laughs> thing to do to a child, right? Like, right. <laughs> when you die, you will suffer unless you do this <laughs> and this and this. Like, of course, it would like traumatize a young person. But then just like our entire society accepts that like, oh, yeah, of course you teach that to children. I, right. I mean, children. It, does, it does seem very <laughs> odd that you would allow character. people to teach that, right? That it's it, that it seems like, although we also accept Santa Claus and Easter Bunny, who knows? Although those are, I guess, <laughs> benevolent, um, you know, uh, fictions. By the way, I believed in Santa Claus till I was like 12. <laughs> because oh, I was funny. so trained in like, just like, compartmentalizing evidence and just believing what I was told. <laughs> I actually gave up belief in Santa Claus at around age six. Oh, wow. <laughs> really? See, I know, yeah, and I, I, and I know that some some fundamentalist Christians actually oppose uh, Santa Claus, right? They is Oh, sure. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, some don't even celebrate Christmas oh, because ah, it's a, pag well, a pagan holiday. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't even realize that. <laughs> I, was, you see, I was actually raised by a mathematician, so... I, I didn't get any of this. I remember being jealous of kids that believed in Santa Claus, that like <laughs> they had like magic to their lives that I was not ever going to have because I just knew my presence came from mom and dad, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, well. Anyway, I read a lot of fantasy books, which maybe fixed that in, or addressed that in a different way. But the mm. other theme in the book, and this is one I think that is even more of a through line because it addresses even those religions like uh, that aren't necessarily as... Um, uh, scare-mongering, which is the self-hatred that a strict religious upbringing can can bring about. Um, Lauren, did you you said something about that? That's Chrissy's quote from you. Like, how do you recover yeah. from that? Um, therapy, therapy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, uh, stopping believing in hell is is helpful. I think that's the first step. Um, and then just, yeah, you really, like, I, I had to work on it for many, many years. Um, and I think, I mean, it's not like religion is the only thing that makes people struggle with self-loathing. Like, probably the majority of humans on the planet struggle with that for various different reasons. Um, but... Yeah, for me, it was just like a lot of therapy, a lot of um, learning about boundaries and having healthy relationships. And just eventually all that work got me to a place where I can at least you know <laughs> get through the day. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. And I don't want to hijack the conversation. But for me, it was accepting the existence of a benevolent higher power that helped me get over self-loathing. Mm. Like, oh, right, right, right. Because you're in recovery. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that that's yeah. that's a big, you know, that's a foundational part of recovery. Not believing in God, I should be make very very clear. Not believing right, right. in God, but there is a you do have to come to a place where you at least don't believe the universe is benevolent. Bene- you know, yeah. <laughs> that that you you accept that that at the very least that there is something worthy about all people. And one way to well, get around so, to thinking like, that is through the a benevolent higher power. Not everyone has that. I have a very good friend in recovery who's a complete atheist, and he's stayed sober eight years. So, oh, I was just going to say, like, for me, my experience of God, you know, like, I, I was told, you know, like, Jesus loves you, God loves you, God is love, etc. Um, but like, what I internalized was, um, okay, but you also are telling me that I'm so sinful that I could never deserve to go to heaven on my own. And like, the only reason I'm getting in is that Jesus died for us, even though like we can't possibly deserve it because we're so sinful. And so like, for me, I never found a comfort in a higher power because I, my experience was like, like judgment and guilt. And so for me, letting go of the idea of the higher power was very comforting and allowed me to see goodness rather than sin in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, that ver- version of God is like a giant nugging pickup artist in the sky. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, you do have a lot of problems. You know, you really, you, you really pretty much deserve to die, but I love you anyway. And, you know, you'll never get that kind of love from anyone else but me. And only I can solve your problems and only I can save you, you know? Yeah, I think an important um aspect of the way that faith is talked about in recovery is that there isn't a hell. There's no, (laughs) there's no, in fact, I sometimes say about it, it's like, I went through hell, you know, like that's, that was what I had in a not, in that sort of in a pretty literal way, right? Like, um, suffering that people have to get to, to get to the place where they want to get better. There's no Mm -hmm. need to throw hell on top of that. There's like, it's, you've been in through enough. I want to take a quick break because there are kind of national and international implications for the stories that you're telling. And with um, Secretary of State Pompeo so much in the news, for instance, I think it might be good for us to talk about that, too. So after this break. At the top of this ad, read for Third Love, it says, talk about the great new bra you found and why you love it. And I can do that because I wear Third Love bras. I wear many different Third Love bras. Actually, there's one I've been wanting to wear for a while, but it kind of goes with halter tops, and it's been a little too cold for halter tops. And I'll tell you, so I wanted to be truthful for this ad about whether or not I was currently wearing a third love bra. And do you know how I checked to see if I was wearing one? There's a very simple test, which is I went back and felt 
at the back of my bra if there was a tag. There's no tag. That means it's a third love bra. That, and I don't have to keep reaching into my shirt and like pulling up one of the girls. That is how I know it's a third love bra. They fit fantastic. They have half sizes that no one else has. I discovered that I am a half size. Also, they design different bras for different types of girls. You might not know this, or maybe you keep your eyes open in the locker room and you're alert, and you know that they come in different shapes, not just different sizes. And when you take the online Fit Finder quiz at thirdlove.com, you can find out what sort of bra fits you the best. And it may not be the same bra that fits another person who has technically the same size. And you get to try out these bras as well. You have 60 days to wear it, wash it, put it to the test. If you don't love it, you can return it. And they're not going to throw it away. They're not going to recycle it. They're going to give it to a woman in need. If you are the type of person who appreciates real people in real-time conversation, you don't have to take the online quiz. You can actually talk to a fit stylist. You still don't have to go someplace and show your chest to a person that you don't know, which is something I like about this service. Again, the most comfortable bras I own, I highly recommend them. And of course, there is a special deal for my listeners. You will get 15% off your first order if you go to thirdlove.com slash friends to find that perfect fitting bra. 15% off your first purchase at thirdlove.com slash friends. Describe your style in one word. Simple? Sophisticated? Adventurous? I don't think I can describe my style in one word unless it was yoga pants. That's two words. However you dress, the stylist at Stitch Fix can help you find your new favorite clothes. And that is true for me. I've said this a thousand times. Um, If it were up to me, if I could do my job the way I want to do my job, I would just wear the yoga pants. I'd wear the yoga pants and borrow one of my husband's T-shirts. It's a great look. Um, it kind of goes with um, a messy bun, although my messy buns are, they're very messy. Anyway, Stitch Fix is the way that I get myself out of that yoga pants rut. Um, I actually got a Stitch Fix just like a week ago, and it was filled with cozy sweaters and some uh, jeans that I probably would not have seen um, had I not gotten them in the mail because they were camo get it. Anyway, they're a camo with the gold stripe on the side, and they work. They work great with this sweater that is a beautiful, cozy turtleneck that has a gold stripe across the middle. I probably will wear it, and the person who records these ads will get to see it very soon. Anyway, Stitch Fix, you know I love them. You can subscribe to Stitch Fix as well, or actually, you don't have to subscribe. You can just get a Stitch Fix occasionally. How do they know what to send you? How do they know what looks you don't even know you would like? Well, you do a style profile quiz. They're actually kind of fun. You say, I would wear this. I wouldn't wear this. I would wear this. I wouldn't wear this. They continually update them on their site too. Sometimes when I'm bored, I'll just go to the Stitch Fix site and like grade some clothing, which is probably why they do such a good job of picking out clothes for me. There's a $20 styling fee that is automatically applied towards anything you keep in the box that they send you. Get started today at stitchfix.com slash friends, and you will get an extra 25% off when you keep everything in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash friends, stitchfix.com slash friends. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. 
Ashley High Performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. So the reason why I brought up Secretary Pompeo is that he's been giving these speeches, uh, I think now more than one, where he talks about the importance of his evangelical faith and the way that it shapes him. I think Barr may have given also this speech. And while we know that the president of the United States is about as religious as a telephone book, uh, <laughs> he's the first atheist president. Yeah, I, like, <laughs> I've said that too. I was yep. like, you know, yep. I was like, one day maybe we'll be tolerant enough to elect an atheist president and the monkey paw curled. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Um, maybe telephone books can be pretty religious. I mean, I don't see them around anymore, but I still believe in them. Uh, that Well, <laughs> good point. Although they contain nothing but factual information, if you think about that. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we won't argue about the, the religious nature of telephone books. We'll simply say uh, that Trump himself is not much for religion, right? No. Mm-hmm. He is so, so sure is for Evangelicals and radical yes. traditionalist Catholics. Yes, that is the point I was coming to. Now, mm-hmm. as Chrissy, especially as someone with that experience with that culture, I, I'm guessing you're terrified. I don't want to yeah. project, <laughs> but tell I me. I mean, you know, I'm <laughs> I am uh, more stoic than I used to be, but I'm very much a pessimist because, yeah, having these people in power is dangerous. And uh, yes, Attorney General Barr, now he's a hardline Catholic. He's a member of Opus Dei. They, they work together in this coalition, this Christian right coalition, you know, and Trump is surrounded by a lot of uh, people in both groups, the radical traditionalist Catholics and the uh, right wing evangelicals. You know, there's, there's a lot of both in, in his administration and that he's put in important positions in the bureaucracy. But yeah, I mean, Barr gave a talk at Notre Dame talking about how secularism is uh, a threat and we should be a religious society. Um, Mike Pompeo and state under him and our foreign policy initiatives that have to do with religion have been really focused on um, Christian persecution and elevating, you know, certain notions of Christianity and elevating just Christians over people of other faiths and and no faith. Uh, And it's very disturbing. I mean, Pompeo— is um is on the record as a rapture believer. He is a member of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, which is a weird little branch that I think on the whole is probably even more conservative than um, the Lutheran Church, Missouri. Wait, sorry, I'm sorry, than the uh, Presbyterian Church in America. Not Lutheran, he's Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. But um, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, which is a, yeah, kind of obscure one. But he believes in the rapture. You know, he believes that Christ will come back at some point and raise all the true Christians up to heaven with him, and then the Battle of Armageddon will happen. Um, So when the Trump administration actually followed through on recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital and, uh, you know, made that concrete by moving our embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, um, that was a huge deal for Trump's white evangelical base. The uh, Catholics won't necessarily care as much, but you know, for sort of cultural reasons. I mean, they'll be happy about it, too. Um, Yeah, I mean, Trump has actually followed through more vigorously 
uh, on the Christian rights agenda than any previous president, including George W. Bush. And I think we really— And George W. Bush was like a true believer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, Trump knows that these are his base. They're loyal to him. They praise him. He does what they want. Yeah, it's a trend—like everything else about Trump, it's very transactional. Lauren, I wonder from your perspective, you've both been very careful to not paint religion and Christian religion specifically with it, with the broadest of, of brushes, right? Like that the, there is—I think you allow that there is some form of Christianity that may not be as— Benevolent or trend or as yeah, traumatizing, absolutely, and I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I think so too. Um, but Lauren, I think you. I want to hear from you, especially on this, which is that: Do you think that the general cultural deference to Christianity is enabling? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Well, How should, Chrissy has a lot to say on yeah. this. <laughs> oh, I, I I was thinking you might because you come from that more traditional background that I think a lot of even liberals would be like, okay, well, you're okay, right? Like, you're not extreme. But that seems like itself might be a problem. Um, Yeah, I I do agree that's a problem. Um, I think, like, Chrissy and I are both, um, we are all for people who, like, remain in the faith, but, you know, find a less toxic version or, you know, find their own version of it. Um, I always, I always like want to default back to Christianese and be like, yeah, we fellowship with progressive believers. <laughs> we break bread um, with them. <laughs> and like I, my, since my, my first religion was politics. You caucus with us. You caucus with the. That's great. Um, my, uh, but, my new religion is Oscar Wilde. We dine with them. No, oh, that's nice too. I guess my question is. Um, Maybe, again, if Chrissy, you want to take this, that's fine. But I am thinking about the ways that we in the press especially default to talking about Christianity. I think there's a real fear among even people who in their private time consider themselves agnostic or atheist but and, and identify probably vote liberal but who write for mainstream outlets. I think there's a fear of being seen as— um, discriminatory towards towards Christianity mm-hmm. because it's yeah, and I think part yeah. of that is just as a reaction to like the the very like toxic forms of Christianity love to play victim mm-hmm. uh, and say that there's a war on Christmas because a cup was red like right. <laughs> instead of having a baby Jesus on it, you know. Or um, <laughs> I like that the war on Christmas is now extending to Thanksgiving, yeah. and so, so like I saw a tweet that was like. <laughs> No, it's not Happy Holidays. It's Happy Thanksgiving and Merry Christmas. <laughs> I was like, wait, Thanksgiving is Christian now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm um, currently um, totally mocking that on Twitter. I changed my Twitter name to Chrissy Steals Christmas. And mm. every day I'm tweeting a new entry in my virtual War on Christmas advent calendar. It's pretty fun. <laughs> but how so, should yeah, we so talk about Christianity? It, how should How can you respect the idea that there are progressive believers or people who aren't toxic, who don't traumatize their children, uh, but also not be so deferential that you're enabling, for instance, right. you know, Pompeo mm-hmm. and Barr, whose religious beliefs I think deserve to be talked about because they have made been made into policy, right? Right. Well, one of the things, Chrissy, I'm going to set you up. I'm just going to set you up and you can <laughs> okay, hit a home okay. run. Um, one of the things that— that we see that Chrissy and I both independently came to this conclusion. 
um, you see so many people talking about, quote unquote, fake Christians. And so people have this idea of Christianity in their head that like it's moral and it's nice. And they have this kind of pop culture um, idea of Jesus as just he's super, super nice and he loves <laughs> everyone. And that is part of the Jesus story in the Bible, but there's a lot more to it. But people will talk about fake Christians, meaning someone who doesn't follow like the idea that they have in their head of Jesus as he's just really nice and loving. Um, but that's not what like fake Christianity is. And mm. Chrissy has a lot to say about this. <laughs> Can I yeah, hope really well, quick? Because I just had an idea about what the metaphor, a good a good parallel might be, which is that it's like, it's, it's like the way that some progressives excuse Republicans who are never Trumpers, you know, mm-hmm. like they want yes. to, they want to say, well, since you're a never Trumper, then I don't have to think about all the other beliefs that you hold that normally or in a different era I might have argued mm-hmm. against quite vehemently. Or all the right, race baiting yeah. op-eds that you wrote that helped to pave the road to Trump. Yeah. Or, you know encouraged. Oh, he's just a Chamber of Commerce Republican. So he just wants to like cut taxes and starve the poor. But, you know, he doesn't <laughs> like Trump. You know? Right. He just cheer, cheer led the war on terror and led to the worst humanitarian disaster of modern history. But right. mm-hmm. he's against Trump. Yeah. Um, Case so in point, Mike, Michael, Ger- Michael Gerson worked in the uh, George W. Bush administration very closely with Karl Rove, who helped bring us into this post-truth future. And he I, helped drum up support for the Iraq war. And you read his, his columns in the Washington Post now, and he never talks about that. I wonder why. <laughs> I actually, the William Crystal is the one that I always think of when he's on TV, like doing his kind of benevolent, you know, like he's, he's, he's mm-hmm. a cheerful, smiling, you know, quippy, never Trump guy. <laughs> and he brought us not only the war on terror, but uh, defense of torture and Sarah Palin. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, the proto-Trump. So thanks. So yeah, thanks. For nothing. You know, I mean, I don't think we should, I think, well, this is a total sidebar, but maybe this is, this is actually a little bit of what I think of as my Christianity speaking, which is that I don't think we should ban those people from public life necessarily, but you have to ask them about this. You have right. to, you have to hold them accountable for that. You, it's not that they aren't allowed to have never made a mistake, even a mistake that led to the loss mm-hmm. of hundreds of thousands of lives, like the war in Iraq, but you can't just be like, that never happened. We don't have to talk about it. You know? Exactly. We should expect accountability. Yeah. And um, and I think if we don't pay attention to how these are the kinds of people who paved the way for Trump, they made this monster, uh, then we won't ever actually fix the problem. It's like, you know, you can't denazify post-war Germany without trials and tribunals and facing the Holocaust and, you know, things that took them decades to do. And maybe that's a kind of extreme comparison. But, I mean, we are engaging in some pretty serious human rights violations right now. And this is why I think that the never-Trumper designation is maybe a good way to understand what you're saying about fake Christian, right? Yeah, that, I totally agree. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a great parallel. And it kind of comes back to um, what Lauren said uh, about, you know, the, um, the whole sort of denial playbook that, right-wing Christians use. It's also the playbook that Republicans use. It's, and, uh, you know, it, it's an example of how authoritarianism is basically abuse on a large social scale. If you think about the, the classic abuser tactics of DARVO, deny, attack, uh, and reverse, um, how's Victim the rest of that go? Victim and offender. Yeah. I always want to say perpetrator, and then I'm like, but that's not an O. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, re, uh, reverse victim and offender. They, they both 
do that. You know, even though Republicans have been much more obstructionist over the last few decades than Democrats, even though they outright stole a Supreme Court seat, you know, they talk about Brett Kavanaugh being borked. And that's absolute nonsense, you know. And uh, they they love to um, point out anything and everything that they can in terms of um, whatever would do damage. You know, sexual misconduct has been really a huge topic of conversation lately on the other side. And then they completely ignore uh, extreme sexual misconduct on their own side because uh, it's this intensely in-group, out-group thing that they're doing. The Republican Party has become an authoritarian party. And it's not a surprise to me that at the same time that that's happened, they've kind of merged with the Christian right, which has always been authoritarian. And I mean, I went to Christian school learning things like the Loch Ness Monster is very possibly real, and that proves that dinosaurs and humans live together. Hmm. And also that liberals are horrible, godless baby killers destroying the family. And we really need to um, ban abortion and uh, stop the stop the progress of LGBTQ rights. Um so, you know, I like to say we were doing alternative facts before it was cool. <laughs> I want to come back around to the fake Christian thing because I'm I'm feeling that sense of I'm shame is too strong a word, but that 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 thing at the base of my spine which says, uh-oh, I'm gonna have to take responsibility for something. Um <laughs> <laughs> because I feel like what I'm beginning to understand more clearly is that calling extreme evangelicals fake Christians and saying, no, I'm a real Christian because I believe, again, sort of benevolence in in my higher power, that's real Christianity, but that's not. It's like saying that white people who are racist aren't aren't white. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that, no, I don't have to defend that. I don't have to take accountability for that person because that person isn't me. Like, I don't have to take account mm-hmm. for the structure that we both are part of because I, yeah. I just don't have that same particular, you know, action. That, yeah, I think that's fair. That Christians, if you call yourself a Christian and someone else is calling themselves a Christian and they're behaving in a way that is abusive, authoritarian, traumatizing, I maybe don't get to say, oh, but that's not real. That's not, I don't have to take response. I don't have to deal with that person. I don't have to answer for that person. And yes, on a personal level, I don't have to answer, right? But— mm-hmm. right. Perhaps it would be— Yeah, you know, Paul Krugman tweeted yesterday uh, about his latest column that, you know, maybe for the Christian right, it's never been about morality after all. Maybe it's been about white supremacist patriarchy or or something like that. You know, it's like, well, yes, duh. But also, why would you distinguish that from morality? That is Mm -hmm. their morality. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because morality for a right-wing authoritarian uh, is about hierarchy and obedience. Um, Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, one reason that I prefer secular ethics. But if you want to talk about who's a fake Christian and who's not, I mean, mostly I find those debates not very helpful. I mean, I would call, I would agree, I would agree if someone really pressed me on this that Trump is a fake Christian because he obviously does fake his piety. Yeah, but I, mean, I think know. he's not a good example of what people are talking about, though, right? Right. Right. No, but exactly. his base, his base, they're not, they're not fake Christians, right? Because Christianity, like, uh, like any, um, you know, text-based religion with a long history and tradition um, takes many different forms and interpretations. Everyone wants to think that their version of Christianity is, is the right one. But if you take a step back and you look at it kind of as an anthropologist, you know, you can see that these religions are complex ideational systems that are always subject to internal um, contestation and that, you know, certain words and values 
mean different things to, to different people. And it might even be more accurate to speak of Christianities rather than mm-hmm. one Christianity. But certainly there has been a thread, uh, a historical thread that I think we could trace, at least from Constantine's time. And really, I mean, I would see the roots of it in a lot of the writings of Paul, of, you know, Christianity being uh, manipulative and, um, you know, being used as an ideological force to to grab power and then institute order and support empire. It doesn't yeah. have to be that. But yeah. and, 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 you know, um, that's why I, I, I'm really careful because I think it's very important to build, um, you know, valuable connections and, and political coalitions with um, progressive believers. And I think that shared values are much more important than shared beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think that people who are explicitly anti-pluralist are, are a danger to democracy. And that is much more of mostly white American Christianity than the most of the American, you know, elite public sphere seems to want to face. And I honestly don't think that we can save American democracy unless we face that. Yeah. If you say like these people are fake Christians, then the solution seems simple, right? It's just like, oh, just kind of ignore these people over here that are a minority of the population. But then if like, if Christianity can be bad, if it can have bad effects on our entire society and our entire democracy, that's a much bigger problem to solve. That's a lot harder to think about. Again, I sort of think of it as um, the work of, of you know, people, anti-racist white people having, a friend of mine puts it, you go get your people. Like, we have to do the work <laughs> yeah. of, mm-hmm. of uh, undoing racism because that's our, that's, you know, we are a part of it. But I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know. This is something I'm, I've only been thinking about since we've started talking, so... Well, we also get, um, like, because Empty the Pews is a hashtag um, that Chrissy started, even though we we started the book long before the hashtag, but um, people will often, like, push back and say, well, what about, like, standing up in the pews and fighting for a better church? And, yeah, that's great. That's one approach to it. You're welcome mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> yeah, not our Or what about <laughs> finding better pews going to a different church? And I said, you know, I've, I've said many times, I've had to repeat, that's— a misunderstanding of the way I framed Empty the Pews when I created it in August 2017 as a protest against white evangelical complicity in Charlottesville. Um, you know, I, I framed it very explicitly, and other people will use it in different ways because once you put a hashtag out in the world, it's there and you can't control it. But, you know, I said, um, empty the pews and go to either a better church or a different religion or no church as your own individual conscience dictates. But I think the radical language of Empty the Pews um, was necessary to generate, you know, interest and, and start an important conversation. So we need to wrap up, and I want to turn back to the book uh, specifically. I will not ask you to choose your favorite child. And I also know <laughs> that, that you both have your own essays in the book. But if I can frame it this way, I hope you can answer it, which is what is an essay that resonated that has a particular resonance with you, hmm. that you are—that may not be a, you just, I think it's fair to say not every essay resonates the same way with everyone, right? But that mm-hmm. you felt something like, oh, wow. Do you have— um, For me, there's there's one line in, um, in Isaac Marion's essay, um, which is called A Better Dream, um, and it's, it's, it's about how, like— in order to maintain 
belief, a Christian community needs like more believers. And if people start leaving and saying like, I'm not going to pretend this is real anymore, then it becomes harder for the people who stay to also keep pretending. Um, but so I, I found the whole essay really fascinating, but there's this one line in there that says like, you know, we were encouraged to search as long as we never found anything. <laughs> it's so true. Um, and yeah, and that's what I, that's what I was like, probably the most resonant line for the book, um, for me in the book, because like there was so much, you know, you're encouraged to read apologetics and you're encouraged to read C.S. Lewis and you're encouraged to explore. But like at the end of the day, the the exploration has to lead you back exactly where you started. Yeah. I mean, uh, from about age 12, my family ended up in a mega church inspired non-denominational ish. Like they didn't all actually not have a denominational affiliation, but they sort of really downplayed it kind of churches like hip, cool evangelical churches, all the same toxic theology, but now with a rock show. Um, and uh, yeah, one of the the buzzwords that they use all the time or the catchphrases was, oh, we're seeker sensitive, mm. you know. Yeah, seekers, yeah. Um, for me, I mean, it's really, it's hard to say. A lot of these essays resonated on some level for different ways. Uh, I mean, I find Matthew Clark Davison sort of complex sifting through his family history really beautiful um, because, you know, family is a complicated thing. And um, when you leave your family's religion um, or even just break with their politics, because, again, those things are basically merged for the Christian right, um, mm. it complicates everything. And yet it doesn't make every all your memories bad. You know, it's not like I didn't like anything about my childhood. And unfortunately, this is what people accuse me of sometimes, right? Oh, sorry, you hated your whole childhood. You know, it's like, no. Or, you know, I get accused of attacking everything we stand for by certain relatives that shall remain nameless. Um, mm. And it's like, oh, well, I didn't know everything you stood for was like sticking it to the gays and women. You know, like, sorry, <laughs> I didn't realize that was everything you stand for. Um, so I think we need essays that really like deal with the complexity of that. And I think it's very hard to do because you have to come to a place of real maturity to um, achieve that. Because at first, you really have to focus on reining in your empathy in order to just push back and escape it all. Thank you so much. This is a great conversation. I really appreciated the book. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you, Anna. It's been a pleasure. And that is it for the show. It is, of course, not an accident that we aired this interview as the last one before Christmas, or I should say, the holidays. It's given me a lot to think about as a well-meaning Christian, and it only just now occurs to me that perhaps even the holidays isn't as inclusive a greeting as it should be. Some people don't celebrate anything this time of year. But we are upon the winter solstice, and the end of the Gregorian calendar rapidly approaches. And here in the northern climes, I feel like the weather itself encourages one to turn inward towards warmth. And there are long nights to engage in self-reflection and think about how I might serve myself and others better in the coming year. If you're in a similar mood, allow me to remind us both that whatever you have planned for the new year, 
and wherever you've wound up this December, you are exactly where you should be, and you did a great job of getting there. Onward, upward, take care of yourselves. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.